And I wanted to thank Gil, who is with Dean Harper, who's going to be zipping in a second. I want to thank Gil for the opportunity to come and talk today and say Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. <clears throat> and this is a, a, a three-part series. It's uh, in honor of Cam. And um, But like a lot of you here and at the uh, Advent, <clears throat> I was pretty uh, uh, devastated when Cam passed away. And, uh, you know, in, in medicine, we expect you know, challenging times, but, but this was definitely a body blow. And um, I would probably for three weeks wake up at 2, 2.30 in the morning. Um, Tom, you may have been through scenarios like this where uh, it was 2.30 in the morning for three weeks r- regardless. And uh, thinking about CAM and going through the different avenues of what um, what may have happened and I really, really, you know, struggled with it. As Cameron has said in previous uh, Bible um, Sunday school class, um, there's something called SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. And um, that is, um, it can happen in toddlers. And um, it's very, it's very sad. And so um, after about three weeks, and even during that three-week period, um, I even eating didn't seemed to be um, so much fun. But I, I then ran into uh, Frank uh, Limehouse, and I had asked him about Lauren and Cameron, and he, you know, how Frank does, he was just shaking his head, and he said, I've never seen such incredible faith. And um, so that afternoon um, and that night, I thought about that, and I thought, wow, that's coming from Frank. That's pretty impressive. It's not that he's that old, but He's probably talked to a lot of Christian and non-Christians and to say that's the most incredible faith he's ever um, seen. So that night, I <clears throat> uh, woke up at 2.30 again, like I had been for the last three weeks, but this time it was different. It was, a, it, was an, it was an excitement. It was like going down, opening your Christmas presents or the excitement when you pack the car and you go onto the beach the next day. And So not, not sure why, but I, I, um, some people maybe would say it was the Holy Spirit. I'd have to ask uh, Andrew, but um, I really was excited about going in a different direction, <clears throat> and I had read a couple of books on this topic, and I really uh, jumped, in, jumped into it, and so this is um, an honor, this is an honor of Cam, and <clears throat> um, also in honor of Cameron and, and Lauren, uh, and I think Cameron and Lauren would be okay if I said this is an honor of the person uh, who created Cameron, um, and that's God. Um, you know, Cameron really is pretty uh, pretty remarkable. When Cam passed away that following Sunday, um, he was teaching his the high school um, students uh, his youth ministry at the Cramer House that Sunday. You know, how many of us would have said, you know what, I, I just can't do that. You know, I'm just I'm gonna stay at home. But you know, um, Cameron is so devoted to our young young adults. Um, he he was there. And um, when Anna, our oldest, she's graduating and came home, I asked her, and she said that, um, I said, what did he say? And he said that he was going to take as many people to heaven as, as he could. And so, um, you know, Cameron just finished the three-part series on going to heaven. <clears throat> and um, guess who's driving the bus to um, heaven? <laughs> it's Cameron. He no longer has a lawnmower. This is one of my favorite pictures. Uh, he still has his gloves, but he doesn't have the, the lawnmower. 
and I can picture um, Cam up in heaven asking, you know, God for a bus, and God's probably saying, "Okay, Cam." And then God tells Saint Peter, "Okay, Cam wants a bus. Give him a bus." And then a couple of years are going to pass, and Cam's going to ask God, "You know, I need a bigger bus." And God's going to ask Saint Peter, "Say, give Cam a bigger bus." And a couple of years are going to pass, and Cam's going to go to God and say, "I need a jet." And God's going to say, St. Peter, give this boy a jet. And then a couple more years, Cam's going to go to God and say, I need a 747. And so um, I, I kind of think of this as our our um, time at the Advent, not only in the Advent, but in the community and around the world to make a choice of, um, are we going to give Cam a minivan? Are we going to give him a minivan? Or are we going to give him something much bigger than a 747? <clears throat> this is one of my favorite pictures. Uh, uh, Cam and the giraffe, two two of God's greatest creatures. Um, my son will not return to me, but I will go to him. King David, 630, 540 B.C. Cameron Cole, 1111, 2013. <clears throat> so, um, hopefully, a couple other goals. Hopefully, there will be one person in this room that hears something from this series that will make their faith stronger and help them get to heaven. Um, and then also, um, I'm hoping that there might be something where the parents in the room or that maybe listen to this one day uh, can take pieces of this and take it back and it'll help them um, spiritually make their children stronger. We're going to talk about the leap of faith and we're going to talk about evolution. And, you know, our kids, unless they go here or John Carroll or... You know they get evolution at school, but they don't get they don't get the other side maybe so much, and um, to me that puts them at a disadvantage. Um, when I was up at Swanee, I had um, good friends Mike, Mark, and Jay, and at lunch we would go, always go and have lunch, and we drive in the car, and at 12:30 it was always Paul Harvey, and it was always now for the rest of the story, and I think that that hopefully parents can pick up something here to help our kids hear the rest of the story, especially evolution. And then um, more as a parental housekeeping you know, topic, I think we'd all admit as parents, our kids have physical needs. You know, that's that zero to 15 where you're just going crazy. They have mental needs where, you know, challenging for us, 16 to 21, where they're driving and they're potentially drinking and there's sex and there's alcohol. And then there's the other part that kids and young adults have, and that's the spiritual part. And, and sometimes I have to pause and wonder, are we doing enough you know, for them? Um, and a lot of you in this room are aware that how many young adults have taken their lives this, this past year? Um, two of those were, were our patients. Um, you know, that's a more complicated picture than I'll ever understand. But um, they, we were seeing them for, for allergies, but... Um, the point is that their spiritual part could be a safety net for a lot of kids. And, and I want to um, speak to what Cameron and, and Sarah are doing here, that it's so important that we encourage our kids to um, ask our kids and encourage them to at least get connected with Cameron um, and because they're doing a wonderful, uh, wonderful job. Um, Anna comes home. Uh, Anna, the other day we were in church, and she came out and she said, Hey, Dad, and she was talking to somebody else. And I, I said, uh, Who's that, Anna? I thought I was your dad. And she goes, Yeah, you're my dad, Dad, but that's my other dad. 
And so they have this thing called a FAM, and that's really how, how close they are. Um, I gave part of this talk to the senior students, and at times it gets a little deep, and Cameron would stop and say, okay, everybody, what do you all think? And uh, um, one student popped up and said, I think this, and another student popped up, and we got into this great conversation, and I was so thrilled that they understood what I was saying and that the light bulb was going off. So um, I think we need to encourage our kids to have different groups of friends. You know, it, it's okay to have your Bible friends and all that. So um, this is, um, we can look through science and find scripture. And if we study scripture, we can find science. And they work, they work hand in hand. In a little while, I'll show you why it makes sense. And often people think of science over here, religion over here, but it's really not like that. And we're going to talk about faith versus reason, evidence-based faith. We talk about evidence-based medicine. Why did you use that medicine? Because it was evidence-based. And so we can look at our faith from an evidence um, angle because the evidence is there. We just have to go look for it. And even in science, we can find it. The early apologists, Tertullian, um, Augustine, St. Thomas, founding fathers, scientists, and what they believed. The second is going to be the edge of evolution, modern Christian scientists, the scientific basis for miracles. And then we're going to finish up the anatomy and physiology, the spiritual faith path, and then a summary. So probably covering a lot of material, um, but I'll go, I'll go fast, but hopefully we can, um, we can get through it. This was the first book I read, Francis Collins. He um, was the director of the Genome Project. He's now the director of the NIH. That's pretty, pretty impressive. This is his book on his Christian faith. If you guys want a summer reading, that's great. That book led to this book, led to that book. Um, and to be honest with you, I kind of got a little tired, you know. But one night I was going to pick up my Sports Illustrated, and um, I heard Cam up in heaven say, no, 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 Dr. Joe, you don't pick up that book. You, you pick up, and I was saying, Cam, can I, can I take a break? And he, he said, no, stay focused. stay focused. And then I said, Cam, it's, you know, it's the August issue of Sports Illustrated. It's the SEC preview. You know, Alabama's on the cover again. And he goes, no, I, I, you know, he said, I don't want to hear that whine. You're acting like a three-year-old. <laughs> so uh, when I got into the um, subject, uh, there are books uh, that I read on by biologists, chemists, biochemists, you know, geologists, um, geneticists, uh, and atheists. Um, and I was telling Gil earlier, to be honest with you, when I, when I went deeper and deeper, the DNA, the molecular level, I really started getting worried. I, I really was like going to abandon this whole thing because I was truly afraid that I was going to find something that was going to shake my faith. You know, I was going to call Andrew at 2.30 in the morning and say, Andrew, we got a problem here, you know, but that didn't happen. And the deeper I went, um, the more evidence I found to make my faith, you know, stronger. And it, it was even um, more so, uh, and, and I really firmly believe after um, Cam making me go through this, that um, you have to have more evidence to be an atheist. You really do. I mean, if you look at this evidence, it's... I'm convinced you have to, uh, you, know, you have to have more. Um, you have to be more faith to be an atheist. This is a, a Polkinghorne. He's one of the current scientists. Um, we'll talk about him later. Uh, this is a quote. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yep. Exactly. This is a, from his book. The moral. The moral is certainly not that we should all return to the comfort and safety of our professional home grounds. 
interdisciplinary work is both essential for in the end knowledge is one and risky for we must all venture to speak on topics of which we are not wholly the master. We must attempt a bit of intellectual daring and above all we have to be prepared to listen and to learn from each other showing mutual tolerance accepting acceptance in doing so. I do not see a dialogue of this kind taking place between mainstream theologians and mainstream scientists. I fervently hope it will be one of the leading developments of the near few years. So um, it's just a good, it's just a great point. We, well, we like using the Socrates quote, follow the evidence wherever you may lead. Don't be afraid. Let's just look at the evidence. Um, this is a 1997 survey of American scientists. 39% believed in God whom we may pray in expectation of receiving answers as compared to 42% in 1916, 1916 survey, and they used the same questions. The results challenged the widely held assumption that religious beliefs have fallen off drastically among scientists in the 20th century. So that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. You would think with MRIs and CTs and all this, yeah, it, it probably would drop off. But some use this as evidence for survival of belief. And when you think about the, the Christian faith, I mean, golly, you know, most of us anyway, you get through evolution and, and you get through all the science technology. Perhaps the most surprising thing is that there has been relatively little change in the proportion of believers to unbelievers during those eight, 80 years of enormous growth in scientific knowledge, a fact that contrasts sharply with the prevailing, prevailing public perception. And this is from Lennox. It's another great, great book. Um, one here is the relationship between science and atheism, but what about science and theism? These are two quotes from two scientists. Sir John um, Halton, director of the British Meteorological Society. Our science is God's science. He holds that responsibility for the whole scientific story, the remarkable order, consistency, reliability, and fascinating complexity found in the scientific description of the universe are reflections of the order, consistency, reliability, and complexity of God's activity. Um, down below, Sir Gillian Prance, for many years I have believed that God is the great designer behind all nature. All my studies since then have confirmed my faith. It is science itself that confirms my faith. Um, I won't spend but a second on this because we're going to talk about evolution later on. This was in the Birmingham News. It's just fascinating that 37% believe humans and other creatures evolved over time. It's a scientific fact. 33% believe that humans and other th living things were created in the current form from the beginning, just like it says in the Bible. 30% believe evolution in the form of natural selection may have occurred, but it was with the help of a divine um, being. So <clears throat> this was also in the paper, and it caught my attention. I wonder why no matter where you go and find mankind, you will find that, find that they seek something higher than themselves. Why is this? No other creature and science seems to do this. Maybe it's God and his desire to fellowship with mankind. Doesn't it make you want to kind of ponder, you know, why, you know, we're here, obviously because we've opened our hearts, you know, to God, and we're searching and we're seeking. But um, it's like this magnetism. God also desires fellowship with mankind. And so how do we know that it's not that, that internal drive that's driving us to seek um, um, and, and so that's God's, God's method of having the fellowship with him. This was in the Time magazine. Um, it, it talks about 33% of the world are Christians. Not bad, could be better. 23% Muslim, 14% Hindu, you know, the Jewish 0.2%. The fascinating topic about this, it's hard to tell from here. I'll go back, but... Africa up 22 percent, 
Europe, 1%. Um, um, United States, North America was at 6%. And it, um, it brings up the, um, the thought that, you know, here we are at the um, Advent, and what role can we play at the Advent in the community outreach? I guess that's why I call it outreach. And in, in the world, um, to help make that 33% go to 35% and go to 38%. And, um, I, and, and to go back to Cameron, I think that's what he, why, what he is doing is so important because we can give our kids a lot of spiritual support, but he has a way of doing it. And don't we need them to, to go out and do what we're doing now and so that their kids will do that? And so this 33% goes to 38%, that goes to 42%. So I think we have to remember that um, how important that is. This is from The Reason from God, uh, Tim Keller. We once needed religion to help us cope with a very frightening, uh, incomprehensible world. But as we become more scientifically sophisticated and more able to understand the control our own, uh, understand and control our own environment, our need to be religion, our need to be religion, our need for religion would diminish. It was thought, but this has not happened, and this secularization thesis is now largely discredited. Virtually all major religions are growing in a number of adherents. Christianity's growth, especially in the developing world, has been explosive. There are no, there are now um, six times more Anglicans in Nigeria alone than there are in all the United States. There are more Presbyterians in Ghana than in the United States and Scotland combined. Korea has gone from a 1% to 40% Christian in 100 years, and experts believe the same thing is going to happen in China. If there are half a billion Chinese Christians 50 years from now, that will change the course of human history. In most cases, the, Christi the Christianity that is growing is not the more secularized, belief-thin version predicted by the sociologists. Rather, it is a robust, supernaturalist kind of faith with belief in miracles, scriptural authority, and personal conversion. So I just had to read that to you guys, and I think it's, it's, it's a great time for, you know, again, for our, our um, young adults. We don't need to be losing lives, that's for sure. Because of time, I'm not going to go over this history of Christianity, but it's, it's, it just brings us back to our beginning where it spread rapidly outward from Jerusalem, um, you know, because of Paul, the conversion of Constantine, and the early uh, apologists there. Um, this is uh, Tertullian, father of Latin Christianity, founder of Western theology, earlier detailed description of the Trinitarian theology, pagan parentage, well-educated in philosophy, medicine, and law. What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Our instructions come from the porch of Solomon, who had himself taught that the Lord should be sought in simplicity of heart, away with all attempts to produce a model Christian, Christianity of Stoic, Platonic, and dialectic composition. We want no curious disputation after possessing Christ Jesus, no inquisition after enjoying the gospel. With our faith, we desire no further belief, for once we believe this, there is nothing else that we ought to believe. And things change a tad in that we go to you know, um, St. Augustine, um, and he gets into this faith and reason, which we apply to the science topic. Correct methods of biblical interpretation, four points that became fundamental to Christian theology that are key to the science-religion interaction. First is the doctrine of unity of truth. There is not one truth of theology, another for natural or philosophical knowledge. They must resolve intellectually by the use of reason. 
Second point is the, jo- the doctrine of the two books. And I don't, think, I don't know if I can emphasize this um, enough. It seems so simple, but it's so real. The book of the scripture and the book of nature. Let the Bible be a book for you so that you may hear it. Let the sphere of the world also be a book that uh, you may see it. The idea is that God reveals himself in, in mankind in two qualitatively different ways, by inspiring the sacred writer and by creating the world. We humans can look at both to learn about God. Now, since both books have the same ultimate author, there can't be any contradiction between them. And that's the same for science. God, I discovered this. Who discovered that? When you think about it, just because you discovered something, it's like, okay, well, who created it? Um, the third point is that both books require careful interpretation. Biblical passages have layered meanings, literal, allegorical, spiritual, moral. Um, and the Bible's ultimate divine authorship is partly obscured behind the human words expressed by human writers. So one quick point to make with that is you know, how to interpret the Bible back then. Um, so when I was uh, growing up, if, and some of you, if my parents came home and they had been at a party, and we'd say, oh, mom, how was, you know, dad, how was the party? And, you know, your mom might say, oh, it was a gay time. It was just, just you know, wonderful and gay. And, and then you would say, really? And, and they say, everyone there was just so gay. And it was, and you would think, oh, my gosh. You know, and how that term has changed. And now, and now it's on me. I'm at the dinner table the other night. And I'm, and I'm getting up to go. And, and, uh, and I've got three girls. And I was saying, well, I'm going to. You know, get. Um, I'm going to sneak out, and and where are you going, Dad? And well, I'm going to go hook up with a couple of guys and, and everything. And one's going to go to, one's coming back from the summit, and we're going to just hook up and get a beer. And they looked at me and they went, No, what's wrong? We're going to go get. We're going to hook up and go. And Dad, you can't say that word. Do you know? So you know, Cornelius finished reading Richard Simmons' book, but I haven't. So it just brings up the the that that point. Um, the Bible expressions were accommodated to the understanding of the original audience. Our explanations of some passages should be held only provisionally. So he just did such a good job helping us work you know, through all that. Um, and this talks about failure to conform interpretations and certain knowledge gained from other sources, such as the book of nature, opens interpreter, and Christianity as a whole to ridicule for being unlearned. I wouldn't say the Pope had a problem with that, but we'll spend a second on the, uh, um, Copernicus and Galileo. That's exactly what happened. They were just so resistant to um, changing um, that. Uh, fourth point, religion has primacy, but scientific knowledge is, a, is the um, handmaiden that assists true religion. The subordinate status is a reflection of the relative values given by society at the time. Um, Augustine stated that the knowledge in the natural world both reveals the majesty of God's creation and is indispensable for uh, correct biblical interpretation. I believe so that I may understand. I understand so that I may believe. Um, uh, Specifically in terms of science, warning is given that scientific studies is uninspired by a faith in a greater meaning, risk devolving solely into a means of material production of other abuses. You know, people that get so wrapped up in their own research um, and forget. I was telling Gil a story earlier about a professor that I know that just got so wrapped up in what he was doing, lost and just totally lost faith. Prophet Isaiah, unless you believe, you will not understand, advising us first to believe so that afterwards we may understand what we believe. Seek and you shall you shall find. It is reasonable for faith to... Um, well, let me just jump. I'm going to jump. I'm going to get into all that part there. Um, the, the faith versus reason. You know, God given us, has given us the ability to reason um, so that we can discover His creation. And He's also given us the ability to reason, to understand the Word that He's given us, which is Scripture. 
So it's, it's like he kind of knew what he was doing. You know, we're the only creature that knows how to reason. So we can reason. He's given us the book to understand because we can reason. He's given us the other book that he's written, which is nature, so that we can discover. And as we discover what he's created, um, only because he's given us the ability to reason. Does that make sense? And so it just, it just, it just fits. Um, faith is, belie- is not believing that God can. It's knowing that he will um, because um, of evidence. This is a Dawkins delusion. Um, this is a quote from Richard Dawkins' book. I, I've read um, a few of his books, you know, to be well balanced. And to be honest with you, um, and not just saying this, but after reading his books, I, there was that was the one couple of books that I read that my faith was even more stronger, because his his books they're just and often they're just filled with just what I consider not evidence. You know, give me some meat and potatoes. This is this is a classic. God is a delusional or psychotic delinquent invented by mad, deluded people. That is the take-home message of the God delusion. Faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence. Even the teeth of evidence is a process of non-thinking. It is evil precisely because it requires no justification and no brooks and brooks no argument. You know, how can you read that and it's like, okay, you know, give me something except for a bunch of you know harsh language. Um, define faith: belief, trust, confidence, reliance, and belief proceeding. From reliance on testimony or authority, a professor in a textbook. You know, you got the professor and you got a textbook. What's different with that with the disciples and the Bible? There's no different. The statements "I believe in science," "I trust in science," "I have faith in science" all mean essentially the same, and we should not. We should note that such faith, belief, trust is regarded by most people as warranted. So it's it's like any study, any medical study. I have I, I believe this medicine is going to work. So you go to the lab. You do the experiment, you trust it's going to work, you have the evidence, and you have faith it's going to work. Um, the confusion arises, so you have that same uh, thought process in science. The confusion arises from an idiosyncratic, implicit redefinition of faith as a peculiarly religious term, which it isn't, and that it only means a special kind of believing that it is, believing without evidence, which it doesn't. Um, so we often get this science nature reason. You know, we think of reason in nature, and, and that's how it fits. And we think of, oh, God, Scripture, faith. It's just faith, you know, and that's just not true. Um, we have to start thinking of it as evidence-based. Uh, we have faith in science. We, we, when you write to somebody in an antibiotic, you have faith in uh, based because it's evidence-based, it's going to work. work. Um, it's the same over here. We can look at the evidence because we have the ability to reason, and, um, and we've been given the book, and we've been given the world. So, um, the human plans the way, but the Lord directs the steps. It's the glory of God's to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. And it's right there in Scripture. It's telling us, yeah, we are, that's what we are. We're, we're, whether you're scientists or not, you don't have to be. We are searching things out. Um, and that was, that's what makes our faith stronger. The call to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Why? Why is it? Why do they put mind in there? You know, um, it's it's got to be all of it. And the mind is so important because we've gotten the, the ability to reason. This concept of um, the the leap of faith, um, which um, really has, um, when I thought about it, really to me almost became offensive. You know, to God. And it's almost like maybe starting today at the Advent, we could get rid of this leap of faith term. 
and it was a 19th century Danish thinker, Soren Kierkegaard, felt that a chasm separates human reason from faith and that the would-be believer must make a leap of faith across the abyss in order to find salvation. This is when the saying, leap of faith, originated. And um, it just—it shouldn't be because, you know, if God's given us the ability to reason, He's given us His scripture, His book, and He's given the world that He created and our amazingly designed bodies, why should it be a leap? You know, it shouldn't be a leap at all. Um, you know, as a to, to digress, I almost think of it as, you know, how many people in here remember uh, the first step that their child took, you know? Um, I was I was a resident, and I remember getting the stat page, the stat page, and I called home, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, and I was talking to Cornelia, is it, you know, is Barrett bleeding? You know, you're thinking about all this stuff, you know, is it her head? Is it, you know, this, you know, is it a fever? And, uh, no, you're not going to believe it. She took her first step. And it's when you get past the everything's okay, and you think about first step, you think first step, you know, and you're not there. But um, you know, what does a child do? They're holding onto a coffee table, and then they they get that one step, and then they let go of the coffee table and they take another step. This shouldn't be more than you know, letting go of the coffee table and taking a baby step. It should be that easy for us because everything is there for us to see. Um, and it's even in it's even in scripture. Um, we talk about the, um, the things are written that you may believe. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, says that many pioneers of modern science believe, namely that the nature in itself itself is a part of the evidence for the existence of God. For since the creation of the world, world God, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And so Paul is telling us, there's no excuse. It's, it's, it's there. We just have to, um, you know, pause and look at all that. It just remind, reminds me of the story of um, a town that, uh, kind of like Louisiana, that was hit by a uh, F4 hurricane, and the dam broke, and and water was flooding into this town, and the National Guard was called out, and this fellow was in his house, and the raft came by, and they said, jump in, jump in. And the fellow said, no, 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 I, I, I trust God. He'll save me. And then uh, the National Guard comes back through, and the water is up to the second story, and they have a boat, and, and he says, jump in, jump in. He goes, no, I, I, I believe in God. He'll save me. And so sure enough, he's up on the roof, <clears throat> and the Navy SEALs have a helicopter, and they're saying, you know, let us grab you, let us grab you. And he goes, no, 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 I have faith in God. He'll, he's going to save me. And so the water comes up, he falls off and drowns, and he goes to heaven, and he's really upset, and he says, God, you know, I, I, I uh, trusted you, I believed in you, I had faith in you, why didn't you save me? And God looked at him and said, you know, uh, I, I sent you a raft, and then I sent you a boat, um, and even I sent you a helicopter. <clears throat> and um, we, we kind of think about that, and we think, well, you know, that doesn't sound like us, but in a way... It really can be because, you know, doesn't God send us, give us his book, his scripture, which is a raft? <clears throat> doesn't, he, doesn't he give us, he's given us his world to discover in our magnificently made bodies, isn't that the boat? And then and then what does he do after that? You know, you, wouldn't you think that would be enough? Um, but he, if he's, if he's playing poker and he pushes all his chips to the middle and he says, okay, you know, um, there's only one thing I have left. Um, his most prized possession. 
and he um, he gives us his only begotten son, you know, who dies on the cross so that our sins are forgiven and we have everlasting life in his kingdom. And that's the helicopter. And so we have to look at Paul and say there's no excuse. I can even think of, <clears throat> I think of Frank, you know, now, would Frank would pause and say with the South Carolina accent, um, brothers and sisters, these are the cold, hard facts. Y'all hear him saying that? Brothers and sisters, these are the cold, hard facts. We ask that you, uh, and then Frank ended every sermon with, we draw those doubting hearts and give those reluctant souls the courage to believe. And I think that when Frank would say this, woe to me if I, I do not preach the gospel, when he would say it, he almost had a tear in his eye. I think he was so adamant about it, and I think we know why. You know, God's given us the ability to reason. And if you don't pre- preach the gospel, you're not getting the whole the whole picture. Um, this is a book by Alistair McGrath. <clears throat> Christianity may be open to criticism on many grounds, but it's certainly not vulnerable to the charge that in contrast to scientific or empirical thought, it rests on mere faith. We must be critical of our beliefs, subjecting them to the interrogation. As Paul insists in one of his earlier letters, test everything, hold, fa- hold fast to what is good. Um, Thomas Aquinas, um, we can go through this quickly. I know I'm going over, but we'll go through this quickly because it makes so much sense. Who, who uh, considered theology the highest science? He attempted to prove the existence of God through logic and reason and rather than faith and revelation. That's what we've been talking about all morning is this, is this, faith, is this uh, ability to uh, use logic and reason to build our faith and our trust. His novel approach to spiritual questions and issues involved applying the principles of geometry to prove a theological theorem, namely, how can the existence of God be proven? And so, again, we're, we're totally changing gears. We're going to logic and reason. And some of this makes um, so much <clears throat> sense. The unmoved mover. We know there's uh, motion in the world. We know that whatever is in motion was moved by another thing. This thing this other thing also had to be moved by something, so therefore to avoid an impossible infinite regression, there must be a first mover, and that is God. Makes sense. Number two, the first cause. Everything in reality comes into existence due to a cause. A house is built by a builder who came into being because of his parents, who came into being because of their parents, and so on. So again, to avoid an infinite regression, there must have been a first cause. The third thing, the something from nothing argument. All physical things are finite. They have a beginning and an end. Since time is infinite, there had, there, there had to be a time, therefore, when nothing existed. So then how could there be anything now if at one point in time there was nothing? Nothing cannot bring into being something. There had to always be something outside of nothingness, and that something is God. The goodness argument Number four, the goodness argument, since everything is in the world has varying degrees of goodness, and since a thing's goodness is a relatively term definable only by a comparison with something else, there has to be a maximum goodness, and that's God. The design argument. Things in the world function with a purpose. They have a design. In order for this to be, there must have been an ultimate designer, and that designer is God. And we'll talk about that in part three, about the anatomy and physiology. We're going to only pick a few organs, but it's going to be really obvious who, who designed it? Um, let's, just, let's just zip through a little bit. This is more history here. Copernicus and Galileo. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. 
He set the earth on its foundation. It can never be moved. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. And this was, we could spend an hour on this topic. Um, and it was, it was just, it happened at a time where there was so much going on socially and politically. And, and, and Galileo discovers the telescope. And you can't blame the, um, those who wrote scripture because if you're sitting on the beach and you see the sun come up and then you see the sun set, it, it's obvious that you would think we're here, and as scripture says, we're here and the sun comes up and the, and the sun goes down and we're stable. Well, here comes these smart guys and they developed the telescope and it's like, uh-oh, we got a problem. Um, that's not how it works. Um, it, and um, so then it's like Augustine was saying, we have to use our new science you know, thoughts. It wasn't like they were wrong back then. It's not like the scripture is wrong. Um, Tom, you could, you could test to the fact that we might use an antibiotic now or something like cancer. You know, uh, we might treat breast cancer this way five years ago, and now we treat it this way. And it's like, well, it's not like that was like wrong back then. Um, so, this, so the scientists, you know, to end, you know, with the historical scientists, and they are truly amazing. It's not that they were our scientists now are smarter than the scientists back then. If they didn't discover what they discovered then, we wouldn't be able to discover what we discover now. You know, the difference is that so many of these founding father um, scientists, they were not so, they were not only so brilliant, but they were able to keep it in perspective and they were, their faith was so strong. So what happens to Galileo? So he goes on trial and he's found guilty of convicted of vehement suspicion of heresy for discussing Copernicus theory. He must publicly abjure, curse, and detest his own work. He remained under house arrest for the rest of his life and his publications were banned. I mean, how many of us in the room would say, well, heck with this. You know, I, I, I know I discovered this. And if, if, you know, my faith is going to be over here. 359 years later, 1992, Pope John Paul II reinvestigates the Galileo case and apologizes to Galileo. Galileo, since, since in his, um, his scientific research, the presence of the Creator, who, stirring in the depths of his spirit, stimulated him, anticipating and assisting his intuitions. Galileo re re remained a devout Catholic to the end. Galileo's famous remark can be used as a motto for all scientist believers. He said, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed with us the sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forgo their use. That's just, that's pretty wonderful. And then the Bible teaches us how to go to heaven and not how the heavens go. Scripture was not to be read as a textbook on nature, but as a guidebook to salvation. Um, Robert, Robert Boyle, um, a lot of you have heard of Robert Boyle, natural philosopher, physicist, one of the founding fathers of chemistry wrote theological articles, um, inventor of the Boyle's Law, believed that a sharp distinction should be made between the creator and the crea creature, and this was fundamental to the Christian faith. He claimed that the failure to make this distinction sharply enough by ascribing to nature what belonged to God was the grand cause of polytheism and adultery of the Gentiles. The Bible, he said, makes no reference to nature as a cause, not even as a secondary or cooperating cause, but sees all of creation as the direct work of God. Um, Francis Bacon, regarded by many as the father of modern science, taught that God has provided us with two books. Again, going back to that two book, the book of nature and the Bible, and that to be really properly uh, educated, one should give one's mind to studying both. 
the same for um, Galileo, Kepler, um, Boyle, Newton, Faraday, Mendel, Pasteur, the list goes on. Their belief in God, for, far from being a hindrance to their science, was often the main inspiration for it, and they were not shy of saying so. Kepler, the chief aim of all investigations of the external world, should be to discover the rational order which has been imposed on it by God, and which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics, thinking God, thinking God's thoughts after him. So he, he's giving God the credit for the mathematics. He's just discovering the mathematics that God already knows. And he's using his mathematics to discover God's world. Kepler insisted that light is not the rays that spread out from the luminous and illuminated points. The rays are only the lines of motion. Light itself is the spherical surface that the equal motions constitute the surface that represents the sun in the Trinitarian sphere. Hence in optics as in most of his science, Kepler's contemplation of nature brought him back not just to theism, but to the very heart of the gospel. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So isn't that amazing? He, he understood light, the photons, the, the molecular basis of all that. But I think what's sad with many scientists is they don't take it one step further and say, go beyond that. I, I discovered it, but once again, who, who created the molecular level of the light? And I am the light of the world. You know, somebody else, somebody had to have that beginning. And that ties in back to St. Thomas. You know, those four theorems that we just talked about. Um, Sir Isaac Newton, I don't know, he wrote more about biblical interpretation than he did about math and physics. Okay. Sorry, I'll finish. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Love your research, and um, and I, I'd love a transcript of this because there's so many ideas that it's mind-boggling. But I would, I would love to get a list of some of the books that you found most okay. Um, there's some good ones. That's an incredible project you've taken on. So, so interesting. Well, I was. That's. Um, I said earlier, it's definitely not for me. Um, you know, I, I sincerely, honest, I mean, it's, it's helped me do this uh, to find some peace with um, Cam passing away. But, um, you know, it's, it's more to, you know, honor him um, and, you know, kind of while we're here for, for the glory of somebody much greater. So, but yeah, I'd be glad to give you the references. So, sorry I talked too long. That's, yeah, it's so. wonderful. <laughs> Thank you.